Well, thank you, worship team. This is always such a wonderful time of the year to sing great songs and, and hear special music and all magnifying the Lord. It's just a real blessing. So, well, today we're going to be beginning our Advent series. So we're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at the songs of Isaiah. And so these are particular passages in the book of that highly exalt Jesus as the Savior of the world and encourage us as the people of God very strongly to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. So a little bit of background on prophet Isaiah. He prophesied in the city of Jerusalem for over 60 years. And this was during the 8th to 7th centuries B.C. The primary message, of course, was to warn the people of God that they are going to be going into exile. And this is because they have been, for centuries, rebelling against the Lord God. They have been committing the sin of, of idolatry and worshiping other gods, false gods, and the immorality that was rampant in their midst. But toward the end of Isaiah's ministry, he also spoke and wrote a lot about the coming of the Messiah, and especially in chapters 40 through 66 in the book of Isaiah, he wrote about the coming of the Messianic age. And so Isaiah's prophecies, as you know, are some of the clearest prophecies about Jesus, some of the most extensive and most glorious about the ministry that he would perform. And so one description of the Messiah that is repeated throughout these chapters, is that he's called the servant of the Lord. Now, it's a major theme, and it comes out in many different places at the end of the book of Isaiah, and there are four particular sections, though, that stand out from their context, and they're called the servant songs of Isaiah. Although it's highly unlikely that they were ever sung as songs, but that's how they're known, and because they're, they're such beautiful and glorious descriptions of the work of salvation that this Messiah would bring. And we notice them when we read through them. And in fact, they'll usually stop because we're reading, that we're reading them. I've listed them for you all uh, in the back of your worship folder, but you can put them up on the screen for the moment too. So there are four of them, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which we're looking at today, and Isaiah 49. 1 through 13, and then Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, and then, of course, the one we're most familiar with is the fourth song, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Well, in the discussions of the servant songs, we read these songs and we we wonder to ourselves, well, who is he talking about? actually, as we read these servant songs, because they're not always clear. And we read some of them and we wonder, well, who is the servant in this passage? Is, is it a prophet? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he talking perhaps about the prophet Jeremiah? Or is the servant in this song, is it really speaking about Israel as a nation or as an idealized servant, what they should be? Or is he just talking about a remnant that God would preserve later on. We also wonder as we read these songs, well, is the servant really the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that's being talked about? And it actually depends on which passage is being discussed. And and sometimes 
There's more than one reference in, implied. And God designed it this way and wrote his scripture like this so that we can really only grasp the truth if we read the whole book of Isaiah. God designed it this way so that we have to stop and think and ponder about how glorious this Messiah would be. God designed it this way so that we would consider well our own identity of what it means to be the people of God and a servant of the Lord. Now, of course, generally speaking, these four songs, we should view the servant as referring to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the idealized servant who would then redeem and restore the people of God, who would then become faithful servants of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your holy scripture, that in it you reveal your purposes and your plans from all eternity, that you would glorify yourself by saving us from our sins, that you would glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would magnify who you are as a holy trinity in the perfect time in history. And we pray for this morning that as we look at Isaiah 42, that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, that you would do this. We pray for this whole series as we look at these songs, that we would come to be able to worship you, Lord Jesus, in fuller knowledge and fuller joy. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. So in this passage, as it begins, the servant of Yahweh here is going to be solving two major problems. He's going to solve the problem of idolatry around the world. And he's going to also solve the problem of all the moral and social disorder in the world. Well, how appropriate for us today even that he would do these things. And so we'll learn that by his servant, God is going to remove theological ignorance, he's going to free prisoners from sin, and he's going to establish justice in the earth. And so Yahweh commissions his servant, magnificent, far-reaching new work in the world that he would be doing. And so in verses 1 through 4, we learn that Yahweh presents then to us his servant and his ministry. And in verses 5 to 9, he will confirm it and charge him in his work. So may this servant, we know is the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, be glorified in our eyes this morning because he would be the one that would remove theological ignorance, free prisoners from sin, and will eventually establish justice in the earth. So first, Yahweh presents his servant and his ministry, and our passage begins in Isaiah 42. It's printed for you in your worship folder, where you can turn in your Bibles. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his instruction. So there's an introduction in verse 1, that's very clear, behold my servant, and then in verses 2 through 4 we'll learn about who he is and how we can identify him. So it begins, though, simply behold and announces to us that there's an awesome message that's going to be given. 
And notice how it contrasts with the verse previous. If you just look back in verse, the last verse, 29 of 41, talking about idolatry, he says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And so Yahweh is telling his people to turn away from looking at those idols and look at my servant. And look at what he is going to do. Through his servant, he will establish justice and remove idolatry throughout the whole world. The servant of Yahweh, it will turn out, this ideal servant of God is above and beyond all that Israel was. They were a failed servant. And more than this, the interpreters throughout the ages understand that this passage is talking specifically about Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew, in his gospel account in chapter 12, his longest quotation from the Old Testament are these first four verses from Isaiah 42. And he applies them directly to Jesus Christ, who is the one who fulfills them. This servant, we notice in our passage, is the one whom Yahweh upholds. It's a word that describes a father-son relationship. It's a word that describes an affectionate relationship between Yahweh and his servant. The servant is one whom Yahweh has chosen for a specific task, as having a unique relation to him that no one else is privileged to have and to enjoy. This servant, it says, is delighted in by Yahweh thoroughly with all of his soul and being. This servant will possess the Spirit fully endowed for this mission. You see, this verse 1 is quoted, as you know, at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration, along with Psalm 2, which also describes the same relationship and work as the Son of God in a very similar manner. It's obvious to New Testament readers that what we're reading about here in the very first verse is we are reading about the triune nature of our God and Jesus Christ. It's a glorious description of the Father and the Son. And so we are to look at Him. And it's quite clear that this servant is to be understood as the promised Messiah, the divine one Himself. He's going to bring justice to the nations. Did you notice that that's repeated in verse 1, 3, and 4? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice, verse 3. In verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth. This is no normal person, this servant, who's going to bring justice to the world. And this justice is going to involve judgment about the one true God and the truth of God. It's going to involve proclamation, and it's going to involve the establishment of this justice. Now, if we're reading through the book of Isaiah, it should remind us to think back to the promise, the first main significant promise in the book of Isaiah chapter 11 that speaks about him. You can turn back in your Bibles, if you'd like to, to Isaiah 11 verse 1, and I'll read to you this prophecy. Isaiah 11, 1, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, 
And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's who we're talking about in Isaiah 42. And we understand that the Messiah's work would begin with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That's how Jesus brought righteousness at the very beginning. He came preaching the kingdom. And then, of course, it would involve the accomplishment of the redemption from sin by his cross and resurrection. That's a key part of the plan to bring about righteousness. And we understand that the preaching of the righteousness continues by the church in the world as Jesus from on high empowers us and final justice and righteousness will come to fulfillment when the Messiah returns to the earth to establish it. Now, how are we going to know who he is? The manner and success of the servant's ministry then continues on in verses 5 or in verses 2 through 4. How will the servant king accomplish this? What would he be like? What would the manner of his work be? How are we going to know who he is? Well, we read in verse 2 that he will not cry out aloud. He will not lift up his voice or make his, his, his word heard in the street. So in verse 2, he's not going to be crying out for assistance. He doesn't need anybody's help to do his job. He will do it alone. What a king. He will not engage in strife and argument with people because he has divine authority and what he speaks is true, period. He will advance his work in secrecy almost rather than in bold relief of public sensationalism. He will begin with quiet instruction in the truth and he will speak softly and unobtrusively without advertising unlike all the worldly men and kings of this world. And in verse 3, then we go on, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's going to bring about true judgment in a very befitting manner, without violence and oppression, like the kings of this world try to do. He will handle the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed with gentleness and compassion, and not with a spirit of conquest. He's going to support that's bent over by the strong winds and strengthen it to stand tall, and he will trim the almost extinguished wicks and add oil to the lamps so they can burn brightly. He will have pity on those who are downtrodden and disillusioned, teaching them the truth about God. Does any of this remind you of what you read in the gospel accounts about Jesus Christ? This is how he ministered. Verse 4, and we read, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his law. He will not be broken or disheartened himself or distressed, even with such a, a large task that he has to bring about worldwide justice. 
In fact, there's a hint here of the fourth song that we'll get to in a number of weeks and his suffering on the cross and how it would bring redemption. But he's not going to be deterred or immobilized, but steadily proceed according to the divine plan until he gets it done. And he'll be faithful to the very end, persevering until it's fully accomplished and established justice in the whole earth. And he'll work gradually to bring about this promise through worldwide conversion and justice, and it will become full. You see, world changers seldom live to see their accomplishments. But this one, Yahweh's servant, he will. And notice in verse 4 that the farthest groups of people are waiting for his law. Better translation of the Hebrew in this context is instruction. People at the farthest ends of the world are waiting for his instruction. Consider this, that you know, the servant's law, if you will, is greater than Moses' law. It's not wholly new. It's a radical internalized fulfillment of it. It's the gospel that is being talked about here. And his words are the words of hope for the nations. He's their only hope. And he brings hope to them through the preaching of his word. These people are out there waiting for the instruction to come from the servant and deliverance to come. They're waiting right now for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be brought to them. I wonder which servant of Yahweh is supposed to accomplish that task. You see, Yahweh presents his servant's ministry. The servant is single-handedly going to establish divine justice in the earth. I mean, we should be amazed at this. The servant should remind you of Jesus Christ, and you see his divine glory here in this passage. And in this series, we're going to be learning about gospel mission, actually, from Isaiah. That's the whole purpose of Advent. Jesus became incarnate to accomplish the purposes of God in redemption and to bring that salvation to the ends of the earth and to all the peoples of this world. That's what the servant songs are about. As we're going to see, God will remove theological ignorance through him and his teaching. He will free prisoners from their sin, of course, by his accomplishment on the cross, and he will establish justice in the earth when he returns. This is God's mission in the world. And so next, Yahweh confirms and charges his servant in verses 5 through 9 and says, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is the one who now speaks to his servant and says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison for those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So Yahweh charges his servant in this new creation he's going to be bringing in in verses 5 through 7, and then he asserts the jealousy he has for his own glory in verses 8 and 9. So God, Yahweh speaks confirmation directly to his servant. You get to see the Father speaking to the eternal Son here before he becomes incarnate in this world. And he begins by restating his glory as the one and only, the all-powerful creator of the whole universe, He's the creator of all living things, all creatures, 
and most notably of all humanity. He is the one who gives life to all, upholds all creation at every single moment, everything that lives and things that are not living. Yahweh is the one true living God in verse 6. The one who created is now the one who is called his servant, and this servant's going to bring in a new creation, one that's going to be a creation of righteousness, and he's called his servant to do it. The servant will manifest this both in the great salvation of many people and righteousness will result in the great judgment of many people. And he assures his servant of his strong support to the very end. Notice, I will hold your hand, he says to him, and watch over him because Satan and the world are going to be great oppressors of Jesus Christ, the incarnate one who would come to redeem humanity. He will make his servant, our Jesus, a covenant to the peoples, a light to the nations. These are parallel statements, and they reference the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. He will expand this work of salvation in the earth beyond the Jewish people to the very ends of the earth. As it will say in the second servant song in Isaiah 49, he says, it's too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He will expand the people of God, the true Israel of God, to include both Jews and Gentiles, and it actually would confirm the covenant that was made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it includes all the peoples who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And all of this is put forth in the book of Galatians, if you want to read that. And it's significant to note that this servant here is not just a mediator of a covenant. Oh, he's the mediator of the new covenant for sure, as it says in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which was, he was just like Moses in that, and being a mediator of a new covenant, you can read that in the book of Hebrews, but he is the covenant. Did you notice that? He is the covenant meaning he's the very representation of it and the means to a relationship with God because of his cross and resurrection and ascension to glory. And all blessings are rooted deeply and, and only in Jesus Christ. And if you read the book of Hebrews, all of that will be explained to you in great detail and way better and more glorious than it is right here in seedling form. Verse 7, the servant is a light. It describes his work of bestowing God's grace. He will enlighten those people who are in the darkness of sin and cannot see. The light will free people who are in bondage to sin and cannot escape it. It's talking about our condition, our natural condition as human beings, that we're blind in our sin and we're imprisoned on the account of our sin. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who believe, follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of light. Has Jesus given you the light of life? Has he opened your eyes? Has he freed you from sin, and are you walking in the light? Yahweh then asserts his own jealousy for his own glory in verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now new things I declare to you. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
So finally, God asserts here his long-standing eternal glory that he doesn't share with anyone. It's appropriate for him to be jealous because he's worthy of it. And he doesn't share his glory with anyone, with any idols or any person. He alone is God, and he's not going to accept being called by any other name than the name he said is his name. And it's revealed in his word, Yahweh, I am. And this refers to his sovereignty as the only God, the Holy One, the Eternal One, and to also refers to the fact that he has a personal relationship with the people that he calls to himself. Now take note of what's being said here. The work of this servant, the work of the servant is not going to detract from God's glory at all. You might think it would, because this is a glorious ministry. So how could it be that this worldwide task of the servant wouldn't detract from the glory of God? It's because the servant is the very son of God himself. Yahweh is a triune God, and we give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's who Yahweh is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Apostle John writes in his letter, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, the former things that the prophet's speaking about here is referring to all the previous prophecies in the history of redemption, all of them, that they're coming to fulfillment, and it's a comparison with what God's soon going to do with His Son, because it's everything else then will be former. It'll all be former. And God is now starting with Isaiah here to declare great new things about his servant and redemption. It's the start in the prophecy here in the book of Isaiah. And all these prophecies would lie like seeds in the ground, if you will, beyond human perception until the proper time when they would spring forth in God's plan. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'd like. The Apostle Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 10. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, Yahweh confirms and charges his servants in this passage, who is Jesus, the divine and glorious Son of God. And this announcement of this servant is so thrilling that Isaiah bursts into song in the next verse. Verse 10 then goes on. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up His zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Isaiah is so excited about this prophecy that he bursts into new song and exhorts us as the people of God to sing a new song, a song of redemption, 
a song of creation that's coming. There's going to be a new creation. There's going to be a full redemption. There's going to be a complete new righteousness. There's going to be the fulfillment of the new covenant. There's going to be a new glory, and we will sing new songs. And this holy servant, you see, is also on a new mission in the program of God and the history of redemption. And his mission is to remove theological ignorance. His mission is to free prisoners from their sin. His mission is to establish justice. And that's what we celebrate this Advent season. Yahweh presented to us his servant here in his servant's ministry in Isaiah 42. And we're to rejoice in God's servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. There should be plenty from this first servant song of Isaiah to take home and meditate upon. Because you know, the command of what you're supposed to do is the very first word. Behold! We are supposed to look. We're supposed to take this song home And we're to look at it. And as we look at it and we pray through it, we will see the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the application. That's an Advent project for you. You can do that with every single servant song. That's one project for Advent. I like Advent projects to meditate upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's one project. The second one might be to read Isaiah 40 through 66. Read the rest of the book of Isaiah. There's a lot in there that you can come to understand. And I don't always recommend books, but I'll recommend one today. So I'd recommend that you read Athanasius' book on the Incarnation. It's an old book. It's from the fourth century. I happen to have an English copy. It's helpful. And I would encourage you to go find one and get one. Make sure you get a good translation, otherwise you'll be confused. But the thing is, is that people, books like this are so easy to understand. You know what's hard to understand? It's people who write about these books. That's what's hard to understand. Okay? C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction to this book, and he talks a lot about how primary sources, the original documents that form the foundation of what the church believes, those are the easy books to read. Because they're short, and they're simple, and they declare the truth of God. This is a wonderful little book to read. I've read it many times. It's completely falling apart. But On the Incarnation by Athanasius, I encourage you to pick up a copy and read it. You see, Yahweh commissioned his servant here for a magnificent job, a far-reaching project to put an end to idolatry in the world. Won't that be a great day when all the idols are gone? To put an end to sin, won't that be a wonderful day when sin is no more? And to bring in moral and social order that we long for every single day that we live in this decaying world. We look forward to that day, and soon Jesus the servant's going to return and finish it off. And he will establish justice even as he's working on it now. By his servant, God will remove theological ignorance. He's doing it right now as the gospel is proclaimed by all of us. And he'll do it then fully, because there will be no more theological ignorance when the kingdom is here in its fullness. But by his servant, he's freeing prisoners from sin, because as the gospel gets preached, 
the light of life comes to people and they get freed from their sin, its guilt, its shame, its power over their lives. So as we declare the gospel to people, the servant, Jesus Christ, is freeing people. And when Jesus returns, there's going to be full and final freedom, and there won't even be any struggle with sin in our bodies and our lives anymore. And the servant would establish justice. That's being done now, too, as the gospel is preached, and people's lives are changed and righteousness is desired in different societies around the world, it's being done as we proclaim the gospel. But it's not going to be done fully until Jesus returns. And when he returns, justice will happen in an instant. And he will slay all the wicked, and he will establish himself as the king. Let's pray for this. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as the servant of the Lord, the only one, the high and exalted one, the eternal Son, will come to establish justice in this world, to bring about truth and the true worship of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you have freed us from sin and given us the light of life. We pray this morning that you would cause us as your people to behold your glory from Isaiah 42 and cause us to do that this week as we re-preach this passage to ourselves, because it's so simple and so orderly and so filled with glorious descriptions of who you are, what you've done, and what you're going to be doing. And we pray all these things for your sake, Jesus. Amen. will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Let's stand together.
our prayer this Advent season and always that you would open our eyes to see your beauty and your glory. Thank you for being the light in our hearts and also the light of the world. Amen.